0: It is my hope that through these episodes, people can learn not only what it takes to be an effective nonprofit organization, but to hear real stories from real leaders who are successfully making a positive impact in their communities. We hope you enjoy this series as together we hear how they're making their world better. What if your Wall Street investments could actually be used for social good? Well, one nonprofit is actually doing just that. My guest today is Ethan Powell. He's the CEO of Impact Shares, the first 501c3 nonprofit exchange-traded fund platform. Backed by the Rockefeller Foundation, Impact Shares helps organizations translate their social values into an investable product that is traded on the exchange. Their nonprofit partners define a set of evolving criteria for companies that are committed to being a part of their ETF to ensure ongoing alignment of corporate behaviors with social values. A portion of these profits go directly back to these nonprofit partners. Currently, Impact Shares has two nonprofit partners focused on gender and racial diversity, as well as one focused on sustainability. I think you're going to really enjoy today's show. Well, my guest today is Ethan Powell, CEO of Impact Shares, the first 501c3 nonprofit exchange traded fund platform. Ethan, thanks for being on the show today.
1: Rob, thank you for having me.
0: Well, I think this is a topic that is going to really intrigue my listeners, partly because it's a new topic for a lot of nonprofit leaders. So perhaps just give us a quick one-on-one overview of what Impact Shares is all about and what are these three ETF funds that primarily seek a social impact through their market returns.
1: If you think about uh, nonprofits and how they can expand their mission and make real meaningful changes in society Um, that are consistent with their organizational mission. You've got to involve the private sector, right? Over two-thirds of our nation's GDP is generated from the private sector. Less than 7% of the GDP is um, associated with nonprofits. So, um, you know, working adults spend over half their lives at at a uh, work location. So, uh, for us, it's really about working with leading social advocacy groups to expand their mission by harnessing the power of capitalism and, and capital markets to help change the trajectory of the private sector. Um, we do that, as you pointed out, through exchange traded funds. Um, and effectively what we do is, uh, we, we're capitalizing on this growth in ESG investing or, uh, you know, responsible, uh, or socially responsible investing. Um That, since 2008, has grown from roughly a trillion dollars to over $12 trillion here in the U.S. Um And most of those $12 trillion, you've got Wall Street firms being the arbiter of what a good corporate citizen is. And, you know, between you and I, I don't know that they're in the best position to be a judge of good corporate responsibility, frankly. Um, Instead, we have these organizations here in the U.S. like the NAACP that have been advocating for um, people of color for over 110 years um, that very much uh, know uh, the issues surrounding um, being a person of color here in the U.S. and know what we need as a society from the private sector to help address those issues. So that's really what we do. So. To your to your original question, how we do that is we sit down with our, our social advocacy groups and we say, okay, what are the social screens or the goals and expectations that you have of the private sector relative to your organizational mission? In the case of the NAACP, it's supplier diversity initiatives, it's fair hiring, pay, and promotion practices, it's fair representation in executive management um, on the boards, uh, we have a dozen different um, social screens that are reflective of their organizational mission. And we help to curate those social screens. And then we, along with our ESG research provider, Sustainalytics, score every company um, that's publicly traded in the U.S. based off of those metrics, and, and we come up with a ranking. And um, we then take the top 200 scoring companies across all sectors, Provide them to Morningstar, uh, who creates a portfolio of those companies, um, that, uh, uh, is designed to mimic the broader equity market. So you're not, you know, conceding any, any returns, um, but you are investing those companies that are most committed to empowering people of color in the U.S. And so our goal is really that, Instead of asking a public company, hey, are you committed to, um, you know, people of color in the U.S.? And they say yes. And here's two programs that we've got. Um, instead, it, the answer should be yes. Um, we are also in the NAACP minority empowerment fund because these are the 12 things that they care about. And we do those things better than our competitors on a relative basis.
0: What's well, really interesting. And I understand, I learned from uh, what you do on your website, that your goal is to help organizations and donors translate their social values into an investable product that's traded on the New York Stock Exchange. So it appears you're blending social enterprise with investing. So you've already kind of touched on that, but talk a little bit more about that. For someone who's like, this is a new concept, explain how that works with actually using the New York Stock Exchange to bring about social good.
1: That's right. So we've got three funds Um, currently. They're all traded on the New York Stock Exchange. Um, We've got the NAACP Minority Empowerment Fund that trades under ticker NACP. Um, We've got the YWCA Women's Empowerment Fund that trades under ticker WOMN. And then we have a fund with the United Nations um, that's geared towards their sustainable development goals, um, particularly in emerging economies, and that trades under ticker SDGA for sustainable development goals what's important to remember is these social advocacy groups already have strong corporate relationships um, oftentimes they' are the largest donors and and uh, philanthropic support for the organizations
0: but they also have
1: uh, corporate engagement teams and um, historically uh, the corporate engagement teams have um, had varying uh, aspirations for the private sector based off of the individuals in those roles um, and and what was, you know, might be going on uh, in the current environment. So what we're really uh, helping them do is institutionalize those goals and expectations. And in some cases, they may differ um, from industry to industry. Um, and what we found is that the private sector really appreciates that. Um, If you take, uh, women's issues with the Time's Up movement and the Me Too movement or the Black Lives Matter movement, it, it's a, they're, they're topics that are really important, not only to us as a broader society, but specifically to these companies. And they want to take leadership roles and they're really looking for these organizations to function as a trusted advisor, um, and also as, um, confirmation and almost a tacit endorsement of their efforts. Um, so that's really what we're we're providing is we're providing a platform for engagement between um, the social advocacy sector, the um, private sector, and capital allocators.
0: Well, when I first ran, read about your company, the first thing I thought was, okay, you're a nonprofit. How is it that you're tax exempt and a nonprofit organization, even though you're trading ETF funds? on the New York Stock Exchange. How does that work exactly?
1: No, that's an excellent point. So not not to get too wonky on you, but um, the funds themselves are tax pass-through vehicles. So the individual investor would get taxed on capital gains and income, um, similar to any other investment that they would make. Um, The difference really is that the advisor itself is a nonprofit. So we're a 501c3 sec registered investment advisor. Um, and we don't retain earnings, we don't have any sort of profit motive, all of the sort of profitability, if you will, that would be accruing to a traditional asset manager goes back to our collaborating um, nonprofit, our social advocacy firm.
0: Now, I understand you were backed by the Rockefeller Foundation, and so maybe you could talk a little bit about that relationship. Number one, and then you already mentioned the three funds that you focus on.
1: So you're right. We're we're funded by the Rockefeller Foundation's Innovative Finance Group, and there is a growing realization in large philanthropic organizations that um, you know solving the world's um, climate and social issues um cannot be accomplished through philanthropic capital alone. And um the the Rockefeller Foundation has something called a zero gap initiative and, and other firms like the MacArthur Foundation, Ford Foundation, and others are um adopting a similar approach, which is attracting private capital to help fill the gap in funding. To achieve the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, which you know estimates range from 20 trillion annually to 50 trillion. Um, So, you know, I I think the goal is to really harness um, capital not just from a charitable giving standpoint, but throughout your portfolio to be much more intentional with what the social implications are and. At Impact Shares, we really believe that, um, you know, the traditional sort of efficient market frontier, which is historically on a um, uh, two-dimensional graph that, that graphs risk and return, um, there's really a third dimension, and that is social impact. And so, you know, asset management and investment management is the efficient and effective allocation of capital resources towards society's goals. Um, and, of course, one of those ways to measure – um, successful allocation is through superior risk-adjusted return. But another one is the social implication, and um, we really believe that in five to ten years from now, we won't be talking about um, you—you know—distinct ESG strategies per se or social responsible strategies. Rather, every asset manager will have to explain their investment philosophy, people, and process relative to. Um, not only um risk in return but also social implications. So um so, so that's kind of the premise with which we're operating. I think everyone um appreciates uh the efforts that the NAACP has historically made for labor rights, voting rights, um, and this is really extending that mission to be much more intentional with how they interface with the private sector um and you know helping to translate um, some of the more grassroots efforts with, you know, Black Lives Matter um, that, um, you know, permeate social media into something that's more actionable for private sector leaders. Um, you know, as it relates to the YWCA, um, I think that they're a, sort of one of our best kept secrets in the U.S. They've got 160 years of advocating for women. Um, you know, they've got uh, thousands of employees scattered throughout the United States. They've got over 200 offices here in the U.S., and um you know they their individual local programs that benefit women take the form of whatever women in that um local area really need from them um so it could be uh uh services for single mothers it could be um you know uh, shelter services it could be employment services but um what this effort is really designed to do is to um, create more of, of a national um, uh, project and brand, so that the private sector knows that um, their local YWCA leaders, who are oftentimes sitting on, on boards of public companies in their area, um, are also uh, can be viewed as a trusted business advisor um, to really help them navigate, um, you know, you know what can be a tricky. Um, uh, social issue and sort of the times up movement. Um, you know, good, a good indication of that is, is, you know, there's a very well intended public company that instituted a rule that, um, it was against company policy to make eye contact for longer than five seconds. So, um, you know, the YWCA appreciates the efforts and, uh, appreciates where they're coming from. But, uh, you know, there's probably other things that can be done before, um, kind of going into subtle, um nonverbal cues uh you know that that they could do to sort of promote um the empowerment of women. So 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 that's kind of the goal there. And then and then with the United Nations Fund, um, you know, the sustainable development goals are broad. Um they're really not written for um investment managers. They're really written for a broad swath of um leaders across public policy, the private sector and and capital markets. And So what we did with the United Nations Capital Development Fund um, was interpret those um, 17 sustainable development goals into more actionable um, tactical goals for large multinationals.
0: Hey everybody, Rob here. Thanks so much for listening to the Nonprofit Leadership Show. If this is your first time listening to us, I wanted to make sure you were aware of a whole group of other interviews with fascinating guests that I've previously interviewed. Just go to our website, nonprofitleadershippodcast.org, and there you'll find numerous interviews of nonprofit leaders from all over the country, even from different countries, all trying to make their world better. I think you'll really enjoy those interviews. I also wanna make sure you knew about a new feature. Um, We wanna give you more content, and we'd like to get that information to you. And all you have to do is give us your email. When you go to that website, you can put your email address in that first box you'll see on the front page, and you'll be added to our monthly email update. In addition to some great content, you'll see the latest uh, podcast shows that will be actually sent right to your inbox. And that way you'll never miss any of the great content on this show. The other thing I will mention to you is if you have questions or comments or you'd like to be on the show, do not hesitate to email me. I'd love to hear from you. Just do that through our website, my email, rob at ccofpc.org. Well, thanks again for listening. Now back to the show. Very interesting. And each one of those funds are so unique. Um, Now, to just kind of maybe more basic question, uh, as I think about what you do and how much good you can be doing and are doing, why do you think there's not more organizations like your own? Like in other words, is it a funding issue? Maybe um, you would need a larger foundation, like the Rockefeller Foundation, to really make it sustainable. But what are your thoughts of why there's not more companies just like your own that are nonprofits that are raising these kinds of uh, market funds, if you will, to support these great causes?
1: Um, that is an excellent question, and and I, I will uh, you know provide you with my sort of editorial perspective on this. Um, uh, and, and frankly, I think that uh, financial services. Um you know typically attract people that are very interested in money, making money, growing capital, um and oftentimes they don 't reach uh sort of the philanthropic and sort of what are the social implications of my role in society until they're um you know later on in life um, you know Paul Tudor Jones started a company called just capital um And that's kind of designed to sort of come up with a definition of a good corporate citizen. Um, So that's similar. Uh, You know, I would also say that um, the role of financial services professionals is to generate superior risk-adjusted returns. And that's becoming increasingly difficult um, in a environment that has sort of highly commoditized and highly correlated return streams. in fact, Morningstar issued a report last year that said 85% of active managers failed to beat their benchmark over a 15-year time period. Uh, and we talked a little bit about the growth in ESG, but at the same time, um, over $5 trillion had moved from um, actively managed funds into passively managed funds, which means you know the investing public is really losing confidence in Wall Street's ability to generate superior risk-adjusted returns. So if you start um becoming apathetic relative to that goal you really have to start looking at your capital in a different light which is how else can i you know derive value from my capital allocation um and uh you know and you know socially responsible uh, investing tends to be that avenue um so it kind of it, it reduces uh, one of the historic uh, arguments towards, um, ESG investing, which is, hey, just give me free reign of your portfolio. I'll make you more money. And with the excess money, you can just give it on a, from a philanthropic perspective. Um, and, and for us, it's really, uh, you know, philanthropic capital alone doesn't work. Um, and private capital alone doesn't work. Um, you know, and we believe that some blend of the two ultimately is where we can, um really make uh, a more meaningful lasting difference in in our society.
0: That's very good. Now, as I think of my audience, many of whom are nonprofit leaders, board members or volunteers, what's the number one advantage for nonprofit organizations and leaders to having people invest in these types of ETFs?
1: Well, look, if if um if I'm anyone, um I I I believe that it's really important for you to have the conversation with your financial advisor on um, what your system of beliefs are, how that's reflected in your um, capital resources, right? Whether or not you choose to um, affect that in your philanthropic or charitable giving, or if it's through the rest of your portfolio, Um you know I think oftentimes people are surprised as they dig into the companies that they own um the types of businesses and the the types of um, uh behavior they're encouraging through their capital allocation whether it's private for profit prisons or um, gun manufacturers or retailers or um in some cases companies that have had um a really negative relationship with a constituents or uh, an issue that they feel strongly about. So, um, so first and foremost, I, I think it's incumbent on everyone to understand, um, how they're impacting the world around them through their capital. Um, secondly, for your listeners specifically, um, that are actively engaged in, uh, social advocacy firms or nonprofits, um, you know, I would ask, I would ask them, uh, how can they expand their mission to incorporate other aspects of society, right, Um, in part because I think that uh, there are other corporate leaders and and public leaders that are um, really thirsty to have that collaboration with, um, you know, social advocacy leaders that understand the social issues perhaps better than they do um, and bring them into the conversation, bring them into the fold so that they don't make missteps and um, and, in fact, they can actually contribute to the solutions versus the problems. Now, not everyone is like that, but I think um, your listeners should assume that, um, you know, private sector leaders are not bad people, that they actively want to be engaged and they actively want to advance these causes, because I think in large part that is the case.
0: On a larger scale, as you look at philanthropy as a whole, um, do you think it's changing overall, in your opinion? And what have you seen in the investment world? And specifically, how are investors and efforts like your own and Impact Shares shaping that change?
1: Yeah, I think there's a greater realization that um, capital will not naturally flow um, to to advance society where we need it to be advanced. And, and a couple of Interesting developments in the 2017 tax bill include um, basically providing a disincentive for small charitable donations, um, and that's in part through the increase of the standard deduction. Um, So you have to give more before the um, charitable giving actually kicks in, Um, and also um, by uh, reducing some of the – uh, state and local tax deductibility. So more and more people are choosing the standard deduction versus itemizing. Um, in fact, the um, Congressional Budget Office put out an estimate that roughly 46 million people itemized their tax returns in 2017, and that number was expected to drop by more than half for 2018. So we'll see what the numbers end up being, but um, uh, you know. I, we're going to have to get more creative in in how we address and use our capital relative to giving and philanthropy. And another interesting development in the 2017 tax guidance was the development of opportunity zones. So, um, you know, historically, particularly in in, um, uh, high capital appreciation uh, um, firms like uh, some of the technology firms where you have people that are sitting on, uh, you know, you know, 99% ninety nine percent appreciated gains that if they were to sell, they would be facing a large tax bill um you know it it tended to track capital at their existing its sort of an in the, its existing um security or investment um what the opportunity zone provides for is you can sell out of those investments and either delay if you hold it for uh, the position for seven years or um actually eliminate um, the taxable gain if you hold it for greater than 10 years if you redeploy into one of these opportunity zones. And and those are designed to identify um, areas and uh, businesses that have a disproportionate impact to um, uh, uh, you know, uh, inner city typically um, or rural communities that – have uh, low socioeconomic uh, demographic profile. So the idea is that, um, you know, you're providing the investor with tax incentives as as well as, um, you know, a good rate of return on an investment that um, might have otherwise not been made. So um, I think those are a couple of really interesting developments um, that hopefully um, start to get people to rethink um, sort of the bright lines of philanthropy versus um, for profit investment and realize um, they can and should be one of the same.
0: Again, my guest today has been Ethan Powell, CEO of Impact Shares, the first 501c3 nonprofit exchange traded fund platform. Now, Ethan, I think people are going to be really intrigued and have a lot of questions. So if they want to find out more about you, more about Impact Shares, where would you send them?
1: Um, well, they can certainly go to the website. Uh, we've got contact information there. Um, Follow us on um, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. Um, And, uh, you know, uh, my phone number is Uh, 469-442-8424. I answer pretty much any call that comes in. So feel free to give me a call.
0: Ethan, thanks for being on the show today. Very interesting what you're doing. And I have a feeling that my listeners will be very intrigued. Thanks again for your time. Thank you, Rob. I appreciate it. Thanks, everybody, for listening to the Nonprofit Leadership Podcast. As I've mentioned before, we have a bi-monthly email that gets sent out. and It has all kinds of wonderful information and past episodes of people that I've interviewed that are very fascinating. You would enjoy getting those. So I encourage you, if you haven't signed up yet, go to our website, nonprofitleadershippodcast.org. Just put your email in the little prompted box there, and we'll send that to you straight to your inbox. And today, I want to give a shout out to Jennifer Avahosh. She's the chief strategist at Dunham & Company. Dunham & Company is a global marketing and fundraising firm that specializes in helping nonprofit ministries extend their cause by generating more resources to fulfill their mission. Their model is built on over 30 years of experience and expertise with skills that are tuned to specifically address the marketing and fundraising challenges every nonprofit organization faces. I mean, we all face that, right? So Jennifer joined Dunham Company in 2014 and helps their clients increase their global impact by establishing comprehensive fundraising and marketing strategies. I encourage you to check it out, and I'm going to be featuring Jennifer in my next email. Thanks again for listening to the Nonprofit Leadership Podcast.